Полковник Васин приехал на фронт со своей молодой женой. Полковник Васин созвал свой полк и сказал им, пойдем домой. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I am your host, Philip Polgach, in New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And joining us today is author of a book called Soviet Baby Boomers, an Oral History of Russia's Cold War Generation, Dr. Donald Raleigh. Dr. Raleigh is professor of history at the University of North Carolina, and he brings us a fascinating account of what was going on in the daily lives of youth growing up during the Cold War. We often forget that alongside the politics, drama, and fear of nuclear war here in the U.S., there was millions of young people growing up and living in the Soviet Union inculcated with the Soviet regime. In this book, he talks about a group from the Saratov region of Russia who lived during the Cold War. And here to talk about his book is Donald Raleigh. Hi, Don, and thanks for joining us today. Well, hello, Philip, and thanks very much for inviting me to uh, talk a little bit about my new book. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So in this oral history, you talk about the life uh, in the Soviet Union and what it was like to live during the Cold War. But before we talk about that, why don't you tell us something about uh, yourself? Well, uh, I have to say that I'm the exact same age as the baby boomers that I write about in my book. I grew up uh, in uh, Dr. Strange Loves America, as I like to say, in the south side of Chicago during the Cold War. And was very much under the influence of the Cold War mentality. Uh, we had duck and cover air raid drills in Chicago public schools uh, with, with that traumatized me when I was in first, second, third grade. I, mean, I took it very seriously. Um, I was raised Catholic, uh, spent many, uh, many hours saying the rosary for the conversion of the atheist communists. <laughs> uh, so I had this bizarre interest, you know, who are these people who, who wished me harm? So that's sort of the, I think, the, the basic impulse that, that, that created a sort of an interest in studying Russia. And I had a, a high school teacher, a history teacher, who uh, during a civics course, he decided the course materials were too basic and elementary for the quality of the class. So we agreed to uh, study Russian history instead. So that also uh, sparked an interest in me. I went to uh, Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, where I majored uh, in Russian area studies, which was an opportunity to combine basically every course on campus that dealt with Russia, both language, literature, culture, history, politics, economics, whatever. And was very fortunate my uh, senior year at Knox to be in the uh, third group of undergraduates uh, to study at Leningrad University uh, for a full semester. That was a new program, part of a bilateral agreement between the two countries signed in 1970, and I was there in the spring of 1971. And I think that four-month experience really really meant a great deal to me. I, I knew that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I enrolled that fall, the fall of 71, in the Ph.D. program uh, at Indiana University, where um, I studied with Alexander Rabinowich. And certainly because of his role in, uh, in uh, shaping our historiography on the Russian Revolution, it's only natural that I would work on the revolution, too, and uh, wrote one of the first provincial studies um, of the Russian Revolution, focusing on the uh, city of Saratov uh, on the Volga River. Back then, uh, no one really knew if it was possible to do a, a regional study because so few sources were available outside the then Soviet Union. Um, however, I was able to convince uh, Alex that there was enough for me to write a seminar paper, and then I played Russian roulette with my career because back then there was only one way of getting to the Soviet Union to do dissertation research, and that was to 
to win a uh, very competitive coveted slot through IREX. Um, and if you didn't get it, uh, or the Russian side, the Soviet side didn't give you a visa, you were basically out of luck. And you had to come up with a new topic. So everything worked. I shamelessly called my project for the Soviet side the Triumphal March of Soviet Power. <laughs> but uh, I got there, and that was the important thing. So that's the origins of my, my uh, interest and background um, in Russian studies and, and my interest particularly in, in provincial history in Saratov. Well, that's very interesting, and it's interesting that you are able to write about the Cold War in Russia while growing up in the Cold War in the United States. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So why don't you tell us about what, uh, what inspired this book, Soviet Baby Boomers, and what, uh, how, how the book came to be? Okay. Well, you know, I think every book has a prehistory, uh, and uh, for me, it, it goes back to, uh, I think there are two things. One was that, first of all, with the, uh, I continued my study of Saratov by beginning a book on the Russian Civil War. And Saratov was a closed city, meaning I, I simply could not get there. I'd written and published my book on the uh, revolution in Saratov without having seen the place. I edited another book about the city without having seen it. So uh, I was researching a book on the Civil War, uh, had some limited archival access in Moscow, uh, and was on leave in 1990-91 at the National Humanities Center, and just the summer before that, I actually got to Saratov, and as they told me, Paryatki Isklucenia, as an exception. It was still a technically a closed city, but it was owing to Perestroika that I was able to get there. Uh, and what that meant was, for the first time, I had archival access in Saratov, and pretty much unlimited access to at least state archives. So I had to make a call. Do I write a book, uh, a, sh a short, quick book, or do I go for broke and do it right and start from scratch. And that's what I decided to do. So it took me 10 more years and 10 more trips to the Volga, <laughs> where I worked in Saratov and Balashov and Kalalinsk, some of the regional towns in the province, to uh, mine the, the rich archival material. That was such a, uh, a difficult task uh, over that long uh, broad swath of time that I I realized I was getting burned out and I needed to reinvent myself as a historian and do something new. But I still had an interest in Saratov. And then another impulse was uh, a friend of mine from Moscow, someone I, I knew since 1976, um, when I was on the American debate team. There were three of us that were sent over to debate Soviet youth. Um, the theme was revolutionary impact. And um, one, of the, one of the Russians who accommodated who accompanied uh, our group and translated for the leader of our group who didn't speak Russian, we became really good friends. And she graduated from one of the schools that I focus on in my book. And over the years, I've met a good number of her friends and others she, she uh, spoke about who emigrated to Canada, Cyprus, uh, wherever. Uh, and uh, while I was finishing up the Civil War book, I, my office uh, at UNC Chapel Hill in Hamilton Hall back then, I was the only office, mine was the only office in that wing of the building that did not belong to the Southern Oral History Program at UNC. So I walked past probably thousands of times in the 10-year period, past promotionary literature promoting this program in Southern Oral History. So I think at some level I was thinking, gee, Russian oral history, there's so few people have done it. I knew nothing about it, but my friend Luba, came to the United States for her, her uh, daughter, Anuta Anna, graduated from Knox College, my alma mater, 
Uh, she graduated magna cum laude. She was an awesome student there. Um, when I graduated, Duba flew to Chicago, and I picked her up, and we went to the graduation. And uh, it was on the way there. I said, hey, why don't I write about your graduating class? Because uh, they're scattered all over the world. And it was such a privileged school, such an elite school. She thought it was a preposterous idea initially. Um, but when I got to Moscow, I realized that the, there was a Saratov, I knew there was a Saratov counterpart, but I didn't know it had opened so early. And in fact, the Saratov school opened about seven years before the one in Moscow. So I decided to do a comparative study to write about the graduating class of these two elite schools, one in Moscow, uh, one in Saratov. And I, again, I, I tested the waters. I did a few interviews just to see, you know, what, how it would turn out. And I was totally fascinated and captivated after the first two or three interviews. So I decided to, to write the book. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, Don, you say that um, in your, in the beginning of your book that uh, the real, the real nuclear uh, the nuclear nuclear threat in Russia was the changing family, and you even say that uh, your family was the social net, and it was your safety network. So this was something new for Russians and the Soviet society. Could you talk more about that? Yes, um, you know, I, I, one of the questions I seek to answer in the book is, you know, who and what shaped the world views of these baby boomers while they were growing up, and um, Family is huge, plays a huge role, and during their during their childhood, I think there were several things that, that made a, a profound um, uh, impact on me. One was, despite all of the attention we gave to uh, well-developed uh, daycare networks in the then Soviet Union, only a handful of my baby boomers attended Soviet daycares. That is, almost all of them were raised by babushka, by grandma. Uh, or in some cases by nannies, uh, young village girls that were hired and um, hired to raise raise the the kids rather than as an option to Soviet uh, daycare. And you know, as one of them put it, you know, he he went to school and read read official textbooks, but his grandmother had a very vivid memory of life before the revolution and uh, the role the family played back then and its social status and things like that. So they had they heard counter narratives from from grandma. At the same time, uh, in the 1950s, some of them some of them were born in communal uh, apartments, a good number of them. But this was precisely the time that the Soviet Union under Khrushchev began to mass produce apartment complexes, prefabricated apartment complexes, and there was a mass exodus out of communal apartments into private flats. And this too, I think, reinforces the nuclear family and makes it. Um, we began to erode this multi-generational family living in communal setting with other families. Um, and it was clear that the baby boomers almost unanimously uh, claimed that they learned um, almost as a certain sixth sense what they could say and not say in public. And they learned that uh, within the confines of, of the family, uh, of the family apartment. Uh, and how important that was in uh, separating out public life from from private life in the Soviet Union. So the living at home, uh, really, what it did for the Soviets was it was it told them that there is the official narrative, which is the Soviet narrative, and the real narrative, which is what they heard from their families. And essentially, they learned to, as I believe um, Stephen Kotkin put it, to speak Bolshevik, to learn to learn what it's what is okay to say what is not okay to say and when it is a what is appropriate company to say what you want to say 
Absolutely. And um, uh, another factor here is that um, most of the baby boomers had a family member who had been victimized directly by the terror. Uh, and as many of them said, it was the common denominator uh, in Soviet society. Uh, those who didn't have a, an immediate family member who um, became fell victim to the great terror, they said that they usually explained it away that, well, my grandfather died in 1932. Hadn't he, he certainly would have been uh, a victim, things like that. Um, and at the same time, a good number uh, had um, their parents had friends or new people who returned when the gulag was dismantled. And as young uh, as young people, they encountered uh, these uh, gulag returnees in social settings. And that, too, um, I think it piqued the curiosity uh, that you know, they knew that they knew that they had to be careful about what they said, um, even though as children, you know, that sort of contradicts sort of a childhood spontaneity and a carefree attitude. But uh, already from the start, there was a sense of uh, some things were best said in the family and other things were not meant for for uh, public consumption. Well, take us to chapter three of your book about what you uh, when you talk about what they heard in school and what the school system was designed to do for the Soviet student, for the Soviet, for the new Soviet citizen. You say that they, they tried to overtake the Americans in their school systems and this, that the schools were essentially, uh, I believe you even put it as brainwashing, or at least one of your, uh, one of your uh, historians do. They, they say it was, they were brainwashed in these schools. Well, um, my baby boomers began school the year that the Sputnik went up in 1957. They began first grade. Uh, and obviously, you know, that was a, a, a period of probably the, the greatest optimism uh, in the Soviet Union. The economy was roaring. Living standards were improving uh, very visibly before their very eyes. Their parents did what they could to lavish attention on, on the young their young children. They... Uh, provided them with all sorts of possibilities, apart from trying to get them in the best schools. Um, they uh, paid for all sorts of supplemental lessons, from piano to skating, gymnastics, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them were just exhausted from the from being over-programmed, but the parents wanted to give them things that they, they had been deprived of uh, growing up in Stalin's times. So they began school, began school at this very exciting time, and when they were sort of young teenagers, um, Khrushchev introduced his new party program, which um, claimed that the, that the Soviet Union would surpass the United States in per capita production by 1970, but also gave the date of 1980 when they'd achieved pure communism. Um, some of the baby boomers remember believing that at the time. Uh, others were pretty cynical, particularly some of the Saratovites, because about the same time that there, this propaganda campaign was uh, was bombarding them regarding uh, the construction of socialism and later communism, there was a bread shortage in Saratov, <laughs> 61-62. And very similar, about the same time, the Novichokovsk uh, riots, uh, they, were bre- they were passing out bread at school. So a few of them remember thinking, hmm, how can we achieve communism if we're passing out uh, passing out bread in school. So um, at school, they were, uh, you know, they, this, these were young, carefree years. They, they thoroughly enjoyed their school experience. For the most part, they had um, the best teachers available. Uh, they studied English uh, and were, were taught, again, within the confines and restrictions of the Soviet system. I think they did a very good job, particularly the Moscow school, where they were 
more access to native speakers. Um, they were privileged schools in every sense of the word. Um, you know, there was uh, politicization, um, but as many of them said, our whole lives were politicized. So as kids, we didn't notice it. It, it just didn't seem seem that obvious to us. It really, really began to make a dent uh, when they were uh, young adults and university age students. But again, um, uh, as part of Khrushchev's program, uh, they actually came up with a moral, co a moral code for the builders of communism. And as one of them said, it's very much like your Boy Scouts um, uh, and the Ten Commandments plus the uh, the Boy Scouts, uh, I forget what it's called, the oath and the different uh, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, and obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, the Boy Scout code. You know, it, it, the um, principles themselves were universal ones, and certainly positive ones. Um, so they were. This was inculcated in them. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, universally, they fell in love with Western music, particularly the Beatles. Yet they they had to listen to it, particularly in Saratov, with with uh, with great care, with great care and concern. Um, many of them recounted how they got hold of, you know, I mean, Dastali, with great difficulty, they got hold of uh, records, and I use the word very loosely here, recordings that were made on used checks x-rays uh, of, uh, you know, Beatles music that they, someone recorded, that was, uh, you know, they listened to it on Voice of America, Deutsche Welle, BBC, one of these foreign radio broadcasts. So, um I don't think they were, you know, even, even though the, the school curriculum and everything else was politicized, um, what I think find remarkable is that they really didn't have a fear, even though it was the Cold War. And this certainly parallels public opinion polls carried out in the Soviet Union in the early 60s, that before the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was really no fear of, of war. Uh, they really uh, thought that the peaceful coexistence in the Soviet peace program would prevail ultimately. Uh, so that's, I think, a very important point. They didn't really have this fear of America, in part because they were uh, in studying English, um, even though many of their teachers were communists and all. Uh, you know, when you study a country and you study a language, you have some sympathy for its culture. And I think for the most part, this was inculcated in them as well. So there was less of a fear there toward us than I certainly experienced. And I think that's an important point. So there was a, maybe a, a bit of youthful cynicism that they picked up at, at the school years, but it really is until they enrolled at the university in 1967. Uh, and the difficulty some of them had getting in, particularly uh, some of them who were Jewish, felt that the fifth point, Gati Punk, on the passport of your nationality, that this impeded uh, um, some of their uh, uh, the admissions process for some of them. And then the next year, of course, uh, the, the, the uh, university curriculum, uh, no matter what they studied as their major discipline, they all had to study, uh, uh, in fact, the Soviet government worried about uh, the contamination, as they called it, from the outside, stepped up the amount of indoctrination for university students. They hated these required courses in scientific communism, and they joked, Scientific communism. We don't have scientific physics, do we? We don't have scientific chemistry. Where do they get this from? They hated these courses for the most part. And then, of course, in 1968, with the invasion of Czechoslovakia, uh, there was uh, many of them saw that as a turning point where they may not, they may have supported the Soviet invasion, but they realized they simply lacked information 
and that they really didn't believe what they were told in the press. So uh, a good number of them date their serious listening to Voice of America, BBC, and other broadcasts to Czechoslovakia. Before that, they may have listened to hear Beatles music. Now they still wanted to hear music, um, but at the same time, they were, they were interested in information as well. So at what point do you think the uh, baby boomers whom you interviewed really realized that maybe there's another side to, to the story? And not just when did they uh, come to that realization, but uh, how did that affect their feelings about the Soviet Union? Uh, of course, they might have had some negative feelings, but generally, was were they still in support of their country, or did they become dissidents and staunch opponents uh, of the regime that under which they were uh, growing up? Yeah, none of them. Uh, none of them became an, uh, an open dissident, uh, but the majority, uh, I would say, basically all, but maybe one or two, uh, totally uh, sympathized with the human rights movement um, in the Soviet Union. So what we saw here was sort of an outward compliance, and this allowed for a great deal of inner freedom. They argue in the book that they led remarkably normal lives, and that uh, freedom, of course. The notion of freedom has a very historical and cultural understanding, and that people there felt free. And by free, I meant that they had choices, and they had choice. Of course, these choices were they were limited, but within that range of choices, you know, they could uh, uh, they were active agents in their lives, uh, and that this was was hugely important. I see their disillusionment as become as incremental uh, with. Uh, you know, the situation in college, and then at college, most of them, most of them reading Samistat. Uh, some, uh, and here it often depended upon the family, uh, the families that were the most, uh, what I call sort of diehard communists as the parents, uh, their children were less likely to read Samistat. But for the most part, they read Samistat and they claimed if they were interested, they could get a hold of just about anything they wanted to get a hold of. And then, uh, another, uh, so the indo political indoctrination at the university, which they really um, despised, um, questions they had about the invasion of Czechoslovakia, um, the difficulty that some of them had establishing careers. They all did remarkably well within the Soviet context, but um, uh, at the same time, um, you know, there were some, uh, they realized increasingly the role of blot or connections in Soviet society, be it from needing blot to get into university, getting a permit, uh, getting a job, uh, you know, connections were, were hugely, hugely important. Another, I think, very, very um, uh, uh, essential factor in contributing to their disillusionment was foreign travel. And here, um, the statistics far uh, exceeded what I thought I might find. My own casual um, uh, evidence from friends of mine that I made in various trips to the then Soviet Union was that most people I knew who were university students, uh, but not all, but most had, got, had gone to Eastern Europe at some point. Well, what I discovered that was that among the baby boomer cohort, and basically I interviewed 60 people for this book, um, and which represented slightly more than half of the Saratov cohort graduating class of 1967, and about 35% of the Moscow cohort, um, and everyone and all the Muscovites went abroad in the 1970s to Eastern Europe. And all of the Saratovites, except for those who were 
nuclear physicists who had top security clearances. They weren't allowed to go abroad. Uh, and all of them uh, pretty much, you know, it's better to hear about something, see something once than to hear about it seven times, as they like to say. Um, and uh, uh, seeing how uh, people lived in Eastern Europe made, uh, made a huge impression on them, as did the preparations they had to go through in order to be, in order to receive permission to go abroad. Some of them say that my trip to Bulgaria began the year before by going to the local Communist Party organization and beginning to collect 10, 11 different uh, stamps of different people and you know, needing the approval of the local Communist organization, the work, the party committee of work, the this, the that, and how, how um, they were called in for um, questioning, they, you know, a quest, uh, sort of political knowledge about uh, communism, the communist movement. Um, those who went with groups, just about all of them did, also recounted that uh, in each group there was, they knew there were two people reporting on them. Uh, one was the smart one, the shrewd one. They never knew who that one was, although they may have suspected. Then there was the obvious one that was just uh, probably the decoy. <laughs> uh, and this too, I mean, what it meant was that their own system didn't trust them. Uh, and that's how they, that's how they saw it. The living standards, of course, made the greatest impression on them, particularly, um, you know, in, in um, Czechoslovakia, Germany, Hungary, Poland. Um, not only that, the different vibrancy of the different cultures. Some of them commented that East Germany, despite the superior living standard, frightened them because the Germans took communism seriously, <laughs> whereas they found Poland just a completely free country and society. The churches were open, uh, people were <laughs> openly anti-communist. Uh, there was a bit of private trade, the farms were in private hands, uh, there was just more, much more Western influence. They found that terribly inviting, um, and the openness of the Poles too, and the same thing. Same thing with uh, Czechoslovakia, and um, a number, uh, particularly from Saratov, uh, went to Czechoslovakia at the end of the 1970s, roughly a decade following the invasion. And that was a real eye-opener for them because um, they were told by locals, you know, why did you invade us? Why don't you leave us alone? Um, and that, uh, for those who had believed in what Soviet propaganda told them about the invasion, that was now shattered owing to their, their first-hand experience. So. All these things collectively already in the 1970s um, uh, meant that they were becoming increasingly cynical. And then even though Lenin Brezhnev uh, early on may have been popular, you know, after his, um, his stroke and his health deteriorated in the mid-70s, um, he became the laughing stock openly. And in fact, by the end of the decade, um, People told Brezhnev jokes very openly without fearing any consequences. And this sort of represents, in my view, a desacralization of the entire legitimacy of the system. Uh, and uh, because they would have, whereas 20 years ago they would have you know, told such jokes privately and with some discretion, they, they no longer felt a, a need to. That was huge. And then when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, that too, uh, a good number uh, remarked how their views on the invasion of Czechoslovakia and now Afghanistan, how they had changed in this 10-year period. They no, no longer believed um, in what they were told regarding the reasons for the invasion. Uh, 
So all this bred profound cynicism. Um, they were they were very ready and open for uh, real change uh, long before uh, years before Petersburg, I say. I have a question about a specific um, aspect of of these. Uh, of the lives of these Surat of, um, I guess, subjects that you interviewed. And you say that, uh, kind of like, uh, like Orwell said in an animal farm, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And it seems like the Jewish question of the, the, the people who you interviewed who were Jewish had a much uh, tougher time growing up. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, uh, how it is that they dealt with it. And if there was any ways around, uh, this, uh, even a stigma or, or something even more serious about being Jewish, and how, how they how they got around that question. Yeah, I would say here I, I would need to uh, uh, tease out the comparison between Moscow and Saratov. Um, a good number of the students in, in the Moscow school were Jewish, maybe a third were at least half Jewish, maybe more. And uh, this uh, reflects overall uh, Soviet uh, aggregate statistics. Soviet Jews were the best educated cohort in the Soviet Union, so it's perhaps not that uh, unusual. Um, the Muscovites claimed that they did not experience anti-Semitism growing up, but they did when they applied to college. That's when many of them first encountered them. There were a couple of exceptions, but that was the general rule of thumb. In Saratov, uh, what I found was that um, I actually saw the school documents uh, when children were enrolled at the school and all but a couple were they had their nationality listed as russian one ukrainian one moldovan uh a russian and i suspect from what a few people told me and what other people uh told me about some of their classmates that maybe up to 18 percent of the of the saratov uh, cohort was was half jewish or more but they didn't talk about it now uh, what I find interesting here is my own personal experiences in Saratov, working on my previous books, was that anti-Semitism was very real in Saratov. And perhaps for that reason, they tried harder to assimilate. Hence, when a child turned 16 and had to pick the nationality of a parent, they'd pick Russian over Jewish if one parent were Jewish. Uh, and they didn't talk about their Jewishness. So... Uh, I found that uh, a bit of an uh, ironic, more anti-Semitism in Saratov, but fewer people ex claim to have experienced it. <laughs> Whereas in Moscow, uh, less anti-Semitism, but more people experienced, <laughs> felt it. Uh, but I, I do suspect it has something to do with the greater um, need, and maybe not even a self-acknowledged one, to assimilate. Um, Yet another difference I'd like to mention here, apart uh, between Moscow and Saratov, um, is the economic one. And uh, the Muscovites, of course, lived so much better than the Saratovites, yet the Muscovites were much more critical of Soviet economy. The Saratovites had good reason to be critical because uh, as shortages became very real there in the 1970s, um, the majority of them... Um, traveled to Moscow, often quarterly, and these trips were uh, regularly paid for by their trade unions at work. Uh, it was sort of a, 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 a sham of sorts. They would uh, take the Friday night train to Moscow, shop all weekend, and come back in time for work on Monday morning. In fact, there was a joke, what's, what's 
green and clanks and, and smells like kalbasa, like sausage. And it was the number nine train coming back from Moscow <laughs> to Saratov. So it's sort of mind-boggling to that, you know, young adults in this major provincial city, very well-educated, smart people, were traveling to Moscow to buy sausages, hot dogs, uh, oranges, clothing, etc., etc. Many of them saw it as "quote unquote" normal. It was their it was their normality. Uh, some wondered, well, why you know why does Moscow have oranges and bananas and we don't, right? But um, uh, that economic disparity uh, was was really huge. Uh, that said, I think the the commonality was deficits in the Soviet myth economy. You know, the, 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 the major Soviet myths, people stopped believing in them in the course of their young adulthood for the reasons I had mentioned earlier. So you say that by the end of the, or even not by the end, by the middle of the Brezhnev regime, the people had already fallen out of favor uh, with the Soviet Union. Or I'm sorry, the, the Soviet Union has fallen out of favor with the people. What did these, the, at least the people you interviewed, find refuge in during during this time? Did they, was it in terms of music? Was it reading literature? Uh, how did they, how did they cope with, uh, with what they were, with what they were seeing? Yeah. And here there's a, there's a debate in the academic literature. Um, you know, earlier, uh, much of the literature emphasized that people retreated into their private lives. Uh, more recently, there's been an attempt to argue that the borders between private and public are very porous, right? Um, I tend to agree more with the older literature uh, because that's what the baby boomers, how they remembered it, that um, this, again, they were willing to be outwardly compliant and this allowed for greater inner freedom, which meant that, you know, they had uh, uh, in their own private kitchens, they could say what they wanted, whatever they wanted, and they did. Uh, Outside that environment, they didn't. So, you know, trusted friends, uh, Sami Stott, uh, Western literature, many of them, uh, you know, the interest they developed as young adults, film, uh, some things like religion did not play a role, only in, in one or two, uh, uh, one or two exceptions. Um, I should say here too that, uh, uh, a remarkable finding was, um, in this relationship between the system and belief was what about Communist Party membership and the baby boomers? Um, among their parents, and my book, to a certain extent, is a study about three generations. I privilege the baby boomers, the middle generation, but I talk about how they differ from their parents and then how their own children differ from them. And among their parents, roughly 80% of the baby boomers I interviewed, one of their parents belonged to the Communist Party. And some of the baby boomers said their parents didn't necessarily believe, but they did so because to facilitate their career development, their professional lives. Others said their parents were true believers, uh, particularly those who uh, had been involved in the war and uh, fought selflessly. Um, For the baby boomers, only one suggested he might have joined for some ideological reason. The rest all claimed they only joined the party because it facilitated, it promoted their careers, their professional life. It had perks, uh, but they didn't at all take it seriously. I think the only conclusion I mean, you can draw here as a, a party like this had to ultimately implode because uh, 
now, uh, you know, that's how they remembered this, rather than not at the time. Some of them said they were true believers, perhaps up until the time they went to college, but after that, it was just impossible to uh, to be so. As as many of them put it, you know, we have to remember Khrushchev's promises. When you're a young child and you're promised that, that you know will achieve communism by 1980, some of them said 1970 came and went, and we you know we were still living pretty poorly. 1980. We didn't have we didn't even talk about communism anymore. Uh, you know that's that's a very very powerful uh, from an ideological perspective, a very powerful uh, factor in in shaping their worldviews and contributing to their their overall disillusionment. I can back you up on the uh, on the fact that the younger generation, the colder generations, were very much less adamant about being communist than their parents were, and I know this from my own. Uh, my own grandparents and my parents that my grandma was a World War II veteran and uh, said that for a time she believed in Stalin and what, what he was about. And my parents had a very negative uh, opinion of the Soviet Union growing up of Brezhnev or Khrushchev. And uh, among the, the family friends, uh, I would say half of them were party members, but all of them were party members because being a party member meant that you were uh, you could get benefits, uh, certainly better chance of getting into school of getting a job uh and then you also say but then it all fell apart everything <laughs> falls apart so uh what does indeed fall apart how does the soviet union as you say implode yeah i um uh, you know I, I think here um uh the soviet union in a sense reforms itself out of existence uh, you know, it was the Communist Party itself that scrapped Article 6 of the Constitution, giving the Communist Party a special role. It was the Communist Party that that set up the Congress of People's Deputies and held the first elections and allowed other political parties. Um, I think all of this reflects the changing uh, nature of, of Soviet society and the um, what I call in the book the Quiet Revolution. Uh, the impact of 40 years of peaceful, evolutionary, organic change after 1945. If you compare the, the period from 1905 to 1945, it's almost constant social trauma. War, revolution, civil war, industrialization, collectivization, purge, famine, World War II, right? And then you have 40 years of peaceful, evolutionary, organic, evolutionary change. And what happens is that this, this Stalinist economic model, ironically, in modernizing society, destroys the very conditions that made the Stalinist model possible to begin with. So you now have a very sophisticated, highly educated workforce. And as a result, the more, as you know, the Soviet Union became a normal society in a way. So they, they can't, it couldn't remain closed and normal, right? It just didn't fit anymore. So, you know, it was the elite. That was implementing the reform movement uh, under Perestroika and Glasnost, and it was the baby boomers who were there applauding this, welcoming it. And uh, I want to emphasize here that the um, people understand their life stories uh, and their life experiences within the confines of of stories available in society at large. And there were some really different some differences between Moscow and Saratov. Um, Saratov being a closed city, less access to information when my baby boomers were young or young adults. But the real difference, uh, there's a great deal of um, 
much more homogeneous views among them owing to glasnost because owing to glasnost uh, now information became available to all who sought it out and that eliminated the, the difference the distinctions between moscow and saratov um getting a much more homogeneous set of views of uh, sort of or a collective memory in which people could uh see their own story unfolding within these larger larger narratives so they um uh basically despite the tremendously wrenching uh nature of the 1990s and when they lived through something that was the magnitude of the great depression they nonetheless applauded uh the changes that had come and they viewed soviet power with a minus sign and the new system despite the things they disliked about it and there were many uh they viewed that uh, positively Thank you Don. And thank you. Uh we have we have a few more questions just uh just um for you and and about the book. What where where are the Saratov um classmates now? What are they what are they, what are they doing? Are some of them in Russia or are some of them in the United States? Um are they still occupying the same types of professions that they were uh right out of college? Yeah, among the Saratovites, uh I want to say that uh uh the one difference here in uh, One in six of the baby boomers emigrated to the United States, Canada, Israel or elsewhere. Uh only one actually to Israel remarkably enough. Uh and that person was only half Jewish. Um uh, but you know that really tells a lot about how the Soviet system educated gave this cohort the best it had yet they became disillusioned and you know again some of us saw leaving as a as a a, a viable thing to do. Um For the most part they they did pretty some of them had to change careers altogether as a result of the collapse of the system um but again they're well educated they're smart uh and uh for the most part co- collectively speaking they survived the changes very well that said um uh, they acknowledged that their mindset still remains soviet and it's going to take another generation to fundamentally change things but um not everyone i mean some uh, some uh, there are people who succumb to alcoholism um but i don't the statistics here don't seem any greater than that of society at large uh statistically speaking um so they did pretty well uh you know, again despite the the difficulty of losing everything they had and starting from scratch and having to start new careers uh they were pretty adaptive because they were smart well educated and they knew how to live soviet and those survival skills they learned living soviet and connections and blood all of that translated well uh for many in the new uh climate of the 1990s Don, thank you and uh the readers will be able to see the the book and all the information about the book on the website right above the uh the audio file but uh why don't you uh before we get off there why don't you tell us what you're working on now what what's your new project uh my new project is a biography of Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev uh despite the fact that he was in power uh, longer than any other soviet leader other than stalin there's not a single academic biography on brezhnev there are some popular biographies written written by journalists in Russia and a partial biography or two here. Uh but there's there are several people now, several Russians, uh a German, a Brit, myself working on biographies, but 
Well, specifically, two Russian historians invited me to collaborate with them in publishing Brezhnev's uh, diaries, uh, or I guess you might call them working notebooks uh, would be a more appropriate term. Um, we didn't really know that he kept these, uh, and they were declassified, moved from the Presidential Archive to the uh, Russian State Archive of Contemporary History. Uh, so since January, I've been working very uh, intensely on Brezhnev's diaries, uh, and we're planning to publish them next year in Moscow, and then eventually there'd be a U.S. Uh, edition uh, as well. So the Brezhnev project is probably a 15-year project. I, it, I envisage going to work in Moldova, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, uh, acquiring local, getting access to local archives there with Brezhnev. Because political teeth in Ukraine worked in Moldova right after the war and then was in charge of the Virgin Lands campaign in Kazakhstan and Khrushchev. And by that point, the materials from the presidential archive uh, that have been classified will be available and accessible. So then that would involve lengthy stays in Moscow to, to work on that. So that's the project. That's the big what I'm working on now. And I think, it'll, again, it'll be a, one that'll keep me busy for some time. <laughs> for 15 years, it seems like. <laughs> Three Three five-year plans, right. Thanks again for joining us. And just a reminder, this has been Dr. Rally talking about Soviet baby boomers and oral history of Russia's Cold War generation. Thanks. Thank you, Phil. Thank you again for joining us in New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I am your host, Philip Polgach, and join us again next time.